Okay, so in this part, we are gonna enter into a concept that may be complicated sometimes, but if you understand the basics of this, you're gonna understand many things that happen to our patients, okay, and how we interpret some diagnostic tests okay, that we do to our patients. So we have to understand uh, something that happens in the lungs, okay? The lungs have different functional areas, and we are talking about the patient in the upright position, not the patient when it's lying flat. We're gonna see why. Okay, the lungs have three different areas, and I'm gonna represent something that doesn't appear in the pictures, okay, that we have there. Let's imagine these are the alveoli, okay? in the top part of the lungs. Okay, remember, we are talking about an organ and think that we are in the upright position. Okay, and it's an organ that is very elastic and has, besides the alveoli and the air, has blood too. And all that has a weight, a mass, and it's gonna create an effect. Okay, these are the alveoli in the upper part. And as you go down, these alveoli are gonna be more open. Okay, I'm exaggerating a little bit here. Because of the weight. This elastic tissue gets distended, okay, because of the weight. Okay, so these alveoli at the bottom part are gonna be more open than the ones at the top. No, I think I'm doing the, the other way. I'm having my physics very bad. It's the other way. The ones on top are more open. It's like, I don't remember this word there. This spring that, you, that they use in science in school, how is that called? The spring that they use for teaching many of these physics concepts. How is that? Slinky? Yeah. Think about that. I was representing here something that I don't know what is. Okay, so the other way. The, the ones on top are more open okay, than, the, than the ones below. Okay, what else? Blood, okay, let's represent this as a lung. The heart is around here and it's pumping the blood, okay, to different areas. Okay, so there is gonna be an effect in the gravity. The blood has to move up, okay, or at the same level of the heart. So the hydrostatic pressure is gonna be larger here, high pressure and the pressure here is gonna be very low. Okay, because of the effect of gravity, the blood going up, etc. Now, what is the meaning or what is the importance of this? The alveoli at the top are distended because of this uh, pulling of the lower parts of the lung, and that distension has a limit. There is a moment when we can't distend the alveolus anymore. Okay, however, these ones, when we breathe in, they may be distended a lot until they reach their limit. Okay, so if we take a very deep breath, this alveolus at the top maybe is gonna distend a little bit, but this alveolus has a lot of capacity for distension. Okay, so there is gonna be more air coming in and out 
of the alveoli at the bottom than of the alveoli at the top. Okay, so there is going to be more ventilation. Remember ventilation, the concept is the air that goes in and out. We have the minute ventilation of the total lung. We have the alveolar ventilation, which is the amount of air that goes in and out only to the alveoli in general. And then we, have, we could calculate, uh, we don't do that, of course, the ventilation for each individual alveolus or for each segment of the lung, the upper, the middle, the lower part, apex, base. Okay, so understanding that, we then can understand what happens, okay, in something that we call the coupling or matching of the ventilation and the perfusion in the lungs. Okay, we were talking about this, remember there is more or less the same amount uh, of blood that goes to the lungs and the same amount of air that goes in and out. It's not perfect, okay, but our body tries to match the ventilation and the perfusion okay, to try to make a more optimal gas exchange. Okay, the pulmonary circulation has a pressure of 10 to 14 millimeters of mercury. And this is, we are talking about pulmonary vessels, okay? Pulmonary, pul pulmonary artery, pulmonary vein. If you go to the capillaries, the pressure is around eight millimeters of mercury. But don't forget that also we have there the bronchial circulation. The bronchial arteries are branches of the aorta, so it's systemic. A circulation with a pressure of 120 over 80, the normal uh, pressure. That is important uh, in the sense that sometimes people have lesions in the lungs that produce bleeding, hemoptysis. If someone has a hemoptysis arising from the pulmonary vessels, that's gonna be scary because nobody likes coughing up blood. But if someone has a hemoptysis, arising from the bronchial vessels, that's gonna be life-threatening because it's arterial blood, systemic arterial blood in the lungs. Okay, so we have a process regulating, trying to match ventilation and perfusion. We are gonna use the letter Q for perfusion. Q is uh, a letter that we normally use for flow, any type of flow can be blood, can be air. Is, uh, we use the letter Q for that. It's the blood that reaches the capillaries in the alveoli. Normally, this perfusion is the same as the right ventricle cardiac output. That is five liters. Each of the ventricles pumps five liters per minute when we are at rest. And then we have the ventilation with the V. We already talked about what, is, what, what that is. Now, there is a ratio between ventilation and perfusion. If you divide the amount of air okay, by the amount of blood that reaches a certain area, okay, we have a ventilation to perfusion ratio. Okay, it's going to be different at the apex and at the base. Okay, ideally, this ratio should be one. And it is one but very close to one when we are exercising. But when we are at rest, it is 0.8. Okay, that decimal 
tells us that there is more perfusion than ventilation. Okay, so the denominator is larger than the numerator as an average. Okay, but now different areas of the lungs are going to have different ratios of ventilation to perfusion. For example, at the apex, there is more ventilation than perfusion because there is very little blood reaching the upper part. Okay? And at the base, there is a lot of blood because for the pulmonary circulation, it is very easy. The, the, the base of the lungs is at the same level of the heart. So the pulmonary artery sends the blood very easily to the base of the lungs. So at the base, the ventilation to perfusion ratio is around 0.6. So there is more perfusion than ventilation. Let me show you this diagram that I didn't want to put there so no one gets distracted and tries to spend too many hours on this diagram. Okay, this is a diagram that represents the relationship between ventilation and perfusion. On the left part, we have the base of the lungs, and on the right part, we have the top of the lungs. Okay, notice how the red line shows what happens with the perfusion from the bottom to the top, okay, and what happens with the ventilation. You can analyze the ratio from left to right, or the diagram from left to right, from right to left. Okay, I prefer normally to analyze from right to left and say, okay, at the top, there is more ventilation than perfusion. Both of them increase from the apex to the base, but the perfusion increases more than the ventilation. Okay, now what happens with the ratio? It decreases from the apex to the base. Okay? The blue is the ventilation, increases from top to bottom. Red is the perfusion, increases too. Now, the red one, the perfusion increases more than the ventilation. That's why we have the difference in the ratio. Okay? And the total or the average ratio decreases from top to bottom. That is exactly what I have represented here. Okay? At the apex, there is a high ventilation to perfusion ratio because there is more air than blood that decreases from top to bottom. So we have a low ventilation to perfusion ratio at the base. Okay. Now, understanding this, okay, it's going to be very important in pathophysiology to understand what happens in different situations that people may have. Okay, what happens when there is a mismatch between these things? Ventilation and perfusion mismatch is the most common cause of hypoxemia in our patients. You're going to be learning in pulmonology what to do, how do you determine the cause of hypoxemia. Because there may be deep, many different causes producing hypoxemia. Okay, but here we are going to learn how the body adapts 
okay, to different situations that we already mentioned. Okay, we have an example here of a mismatch of ventilation and perfusion. I don't know what happened with this slide. It was why the upper part doesn't appear. Maybe it's too large. No? Was supposed to show the. Okay, on the left, we have an example when the ventilation is less than the perfusion, when there is a mismatching. Imagine someone who has a foreign body or bronchoconstriction or any problem producing obstruction to airways. Can be a segment, can be an area of the lungs, can be entire lungs, everything. Okay, ventilation lower than the perfusion. Every time there is a decreased ventilation, okay, um, there is going to be an auto-regulation. Okay, if we have low ventilation or the perfusion increases above the ventilation, that will produce an increase in CO2 at that level. Okay, the, the, this alveolus is not ventilated, so the CO2 accumulates, the one that goes from the blood into the alveolus. So we have an increase in the CO2 locally. And of course, the oxygen doesn't get into that area. That is going to lead to a vasoconstriction. Remember, we mentioned that you're not going to waste perfusion to try to match the ventilation and the perfusion. This is something that occurs very specifically in the lungs. If you go to any other organ, hypoxemia will lead to vasodilation. Okay, the blood vessels locally, arterioles, etc., are regulated depending on the levels of CO2 or oxygen. That's what guarantees that if we are exercising, the working muscles are going to receive more blood than other parts of the body. Local conditions will lead to vasodilation. However, in the lungs, is the contrary. Hypoxia or low pressure of oxygen or increased CO2 will lead to vasoconstriction. Now, here on the right side, we have uh, what happens when the mismatch is due to ventilation being greater than the perfusion. So just in mind someone who has a pulmonary embolism or constriction of the pulmonary blood vessel simply. There is an area of the lungs that is not receiving blood. So we have more ventilation than perfusion. Okay, we have more ventilation than perfusion in one area. Notice the huge alveolus, very thin blood vessels. Okay, this increased ventilation reduces the CO2 and increases the oxygen in that area Okay, so that's going to lead to vasodilation, trying to get the matching between the ventilation and the perfusion. A simple mechanism to try to guarantee that. So now let's take a look at this part. Okay, notice what we were talking before about the relationship, relationship between ventilation and perfusion at the apex, in the middle area of the lungs, and at the base. Notice how hard it is to push blood in the apex. And please remember, we are talking about resting conditions. This is a person that is at rest. Okay, this uh, area 
Notice the difference in the alveoli. Notice the blood vessels al almost collapsed here. At the apex of the lungs, the alveolar air pressure is going to be higher than the capillary pressure. So these alveoli that are full of air are going to compress the blood vessels. So we're not going to have blood circulating through the apices. Okay, this is going to create certain conditions at the apex that, for example, allow the survival are ideal for some bacteria like mycobacterium tuberculosis. You have oxygen coming from the air when we breathe. You don't have blood. So the oxygen stays in the alveolus, doesn't diffuse into the blood. We have very well oxygenated alveoli, and mycobacterium tuberculosis likes that. Okay, when you see a patient with a lesion at the apex of the lungs, okay, and it's a person that may have some risk factors, the first thing that we always consider is tuberculosis. Could be something else, could be cancer, could be different things, but normally tuberculosis appears at the apex for this reason. At least we think that. We haven't asked. Now, what happens during exercise? Normally at rest, we have a cardiac output of five liters. Depending on the amount of exercise, the cardiac output may increase to 20 liters per minute. Okay, so imagine 20 liters being pumped every minute from the right ventricle through the lungs. In order to allow that blood to pass through, you need to open up blood vessels that weren't open before. So now we open these blood vessels at the top to allow the circulation, and that is going to increase the perfusion. Okay, that is going to reduce what we call the physiological dead space. Because this area here, the apex, in which there is air but no blood, is like the trachea. Remember the trachea and the bronchi are the conducting zone. You have air, but there is no gas exchange. That is anatomical dead space. If you have a segment of the lungs in which there is air but no blood, that is also dead space, but we call it physiological dead space. So during exercise, when we increase the cardiac output and we recruit new blood vessels, we are reducing the amount of dead space and creating a better oxygenation of the blood. And that explains, for example, why even if you are doing a very strenuous exercise and the pH of the blood, the venous blood, is very low, and we have a lot of lactic acid, we have a lot of CO2 in the venous blood, when the blood reaches the lungs and goes to the uh, left side of the heart, the blood is exactly as if you are not exercising. Okay, we don't see any drop in pH in the arterial blood during exercise. We don't see any important increase in CO2 in the arterial blood because now we are using more lung space. And in that moment, the ventilation perfusion ratio is around one, it's a perfect matching between the ventilation and the perfusion. So the, what we sometimes think is not ideal, why the body does that? Why we have a, a not perfect matching? Because we don't need it when we are at rest. We have like a reserve of dead space that we only use during exercise. And I had another picture here that shows that, it's exactly the same. 
And this shows uh, the different zones. Okay, notice at the apex, you have there the alveolar pressure with the capital and pressure in the artery, pulmonary artery, with the lowercase. So alveolar pressure is greater than the pressure in the pulmonary artery. So we have a collapse here. It's not a, notice that here in the middle area, we, here we have the arterial, pulmonary artery pressure is greater than the alveolar pressure. So we have a little bit of blood passing through, tiny. And at the base, notice how there is a lot of blood going through. So during this exercise, we are gonna open up this and this. We are recruiting different other areas and reducing the amount of dead space. That way we may move from having five liters per minute to having 20 during exercise. So let's take a look at different uh, situations of mismatch. Okay, these are the most common causes of hypoxemia that when you have a ventilation and perfusion mismatching, there is a test that you can perform that is called the ventilation perfusion scan in which you can see okay, uh, what areas are ventilated, what areas are perfused, and see if they match. That's something that you're gonna be learning in the future. But also there is an increase in what we call the AA gradient. Okay, AA gradient refers to the pressure of oxygen in the alveoli and the pressure of oxygen in the blood. When you do your arterial blood gases to your patient, you're gonna have a partial pressure of oxygen and a partial pressure of CO2. In order to calculate the alveolar pressure of oxygen, you will need well, a calculator that you have an app. Okay, but if you have to do it manually, you take the CO2 and you put it in that formula and that tells you an estimate of the alveolar pressure of oxygen. Then you compare, okay? If you have, for example, a, in the alveoli, a hundred millimeters of mercury, you should have in the arterial blood like 95. That's normal because remember, we have the mixing with the bronchial veins and also the cardiac veins send some of the blood, the venous blood of the myocardium into the left atrium. So we have this mixture of blood, so it's normal to have a little gap. But if there is a huge gradient, a huge difference, then you have to find an explanation. And you put together what's going on with the patient, with the findings on x-rays, with the ABGs, with the AA gradient, then you can determine the cost. That's how we do a differential diagnosis. So mismatching may lead to a couple of situations. Okay, sometimes we have an increased VQ ratio. Okay, this is very high. Okay, the, this is what we call dead space, increasing dead space. There is ventilation of poorly perfused alveoli that sometimes the perfusion may reach zero. The denominator may reach zero. Of course, we don't divide by zero, but the more we reach the zero, okay, the more likely, uh, uh, the higher the likelihood that the 
VQ may reach the infinite values. It will never gonna be zero, okay? But maybe almost zero. This may be caused by a pulmonary embolism, cardiovascular shock. Sometimes people develop, for example, pericarditis and they have a lot of fluid in the pericardial cavity. Okay, the right ventricle is a ventricle that is not able to develop a very great pressure. So if you have fluid in the pericardial cavity, the right ventricle is gonna have a lot of difficulties to expand. Has a very thin wall. Okay, so it's gonna have a, low, a very low capacity to get filled with blood and to pump the blood. And there's gonna be a moment when the pericardial pressure may be above the pressure in the right ventricle and the right ventricle may collapse. So the result is gonna be no blood into the lungs, no perfusion. Okay, so either having a massive pulmonary embolism, blocking in mind that you block suddenly the pulmonary trunk, no blood into the lungs. And this condition may be improved by administering oxygen to the patient, 100% oxygen. Because remember, this is never zero, the perfusion. If you increase the oxygen to the patient, the little blood that is moving through will get more oxygen that, than usually, and we may improve the condition of the patient. Now, sometimes we have a decreased ventilation to perfusion ratio. And this is something that we call a shunt. Shunt meaning you have the blood from the venous part going directly to the arterial side of the body, to the left part of the body or, or the heart without getting oxygen. Okay, this is when you have areas of the lungs that are poorly ventilated, but they have perfusion. Okay, the ventilation, if it reaches zero, the VQ ratio will be equal to zero. Remind foreign body in the trachea. Okay, or this can apply to the entire lung or to an, an area. Maybe you have a foreign body in a segment or in a secondary uh, bronchus or more limited. In that area of the lungs, there is gonna be this uh, problem. So we are gonna be studying some respiratory diseases in the future and we are gonna explain how this applies. Okay, any airway obstruction, pneumonia, the lungs are filled with pus, mucus, atelectasis, pulmonary edema. Atelectasis is a concept that we are gonna be studying in pathophysiology. Let's say this is a segment of the lungs and there is a foreign body here. Foreign body may be a pebble, maybe a peanut, or maybe a, a, a tumor, or maybe a mucus plug, or a parasite, anything that can be there. If we don't remove the obstruction, the air that is in this alveoli is gonna be reabsorbed. Okay, so we are gonna have this area with something that we call con so consolidation. consolidation is a word that if you analyze it out of the medicine tells you that there is something that has become solid or grouped or packed 
okay? Consolidation, maybe due to pneumonias, maybe due to cancers, maybe due to atelectasis, maybe due to different things that make the tissue of the lungs become more solid. Okay, so when you do your percussion, you're gonna find dullness. Okay, you're gonna find these uh, egophony, bronchophony, all these things. And that is one of the causes of consolidation. You're gonna learn in the future how to differentiate simply by doing a physical exam, a consolidation from a pneumonia or from other things. Now, and this cannot be improved by giving oxygen because simply, how is the oxygen gonna reach? Doesn't matter that you give a 100 or a 200 or 500% oxygen, it's not gonna get there. Okay, so oxygen doesn't fix that. You simply have to remove the embolus or remove the cause of the situation. And this diagram shows uh, this mismatching. This is what we call the shunt, wasted perfusion. Notice this uh, little alveolus here, any kind of obstruction, producing the low ventilation to perfusion ratio. So high, uh, low, low ratio, mm -hmm. may reach zero. This is the normal. And this is the dead space ventilation. When you have a wasted ventilation, high ventilation to perfusion ratio. It may reach infinity. Okay, I think that was the... The last, right? So let's have a break, okay? Let's have a break until nine. We have time today. And then we take a look at these questions. Ah, before you go, uh, before you go, don't get crazy about this part in for the exam, okay? Don't get crazy about this part for the exam. Oh. oh, yeah. Thank you. So here we have an example of questions that may be asked, asking or assessing these concepts. Okay, here we have an investigator studying athletes doing exercise. Okay, they run on a treadmill, then uh, first low intensity, then high intensity, do echo, <clears throat> and they collect some samples. And the question asks, which of the following findings would be present in an athlete following a moderate intensity interval? And you have the cardiac output, arterial oxygen, arterial CO2, and venous pH. and try to get your, what you consider is the best answer, and then you compare with the correct one. I'm gonna be uploading the answers later. There is a tip there. During exercise, the body has some changes. Okay, when the demand for oxygen and energy increase, we already mentioned what happens, uh, the recruitment of the blood vessels at the top of the lungs, so there is a reduction in the dead space, 
okay, that guarantees that our body gets what it needs to get in every situation. What do you think is the, the answer there? One, two, three, four, five. Okay. First of all, even if you haven't studied this, okay, when you see exercise and you see something that says normal cardiac output or decreased cardiac output, okay, these are part of the test-taking strategies. Okay, you rule out first the impossible ones then you have two likely question, uh, uh, options. The two that say increase or uh, B and E are possible. Then what happens? What is the difference? Well, I see that in B and E, okay, uh, the venous blood pH says, uh, they say, for B, decrease, and for E says increase. So I don't think that during exercise, the pH of the blood it's going to increase. It's going to become more alkaline. Never. Lactic acid is going to make it low. So without analyzing CO2 or oxygen, I know that B is the answer. I don't have to go into the, oh my goodness, what happens during exercise with the oxygen and CO2? I don't need to know. I, I just know that the, CO, the cardiac output increases and the pH of the venous blood goes down. That's enough to answer the question. Sometimes we get crazy around the question. Oh my goodness, what happens with the oxygen? Oh, maybe increases, maybe it's normal, maybe. No, you don't need that. See? Sometimes questions are easier than they look like. Okay? I'm going to be uploading this so you can take a look at this. But the oxygen, CO2 in the arterial blood is going to be normal. Okay? Totally normal. Now, 51-year-old man that comes uh, to the physician because of shortness of breath that is progressive, exercise intolerance, has a cough for six months, and can do many things without resting, and uses three pillows to sleep. My goodness, has to sleep sitting down. That is something that we call orthopnea. Okay? Patients can't lie flat. Because when they lie flat, there is a pulling of blood into the lungs, and that produces dyspnea. So they have to sit down to sleep. And if you want to assess the severity of a patient that has heart failure without doing, doing any test, with how many, pills, uh, how many pillows do you use to sleep? One, two, three. That is mild, moderate, or severe. Okay. And he has a history of cocaine use in his 30s, he's 51, but hasn't used any illicit drugs for the past 20 years. Please, this uh, sentence is very common in exams, and it's a great distractor. Many people go, oh my goodness, he was using cocaine 20 years ago. So what? You, are, are you going to call the police or something? <laughs> What's this? Uh, Cocaine waited 20 years to do the effect. <laughs> but many students get confused. Oh my goodness, this has something to do with ventricular dilation and something. Maybe it has a, I don't know, something, an arrhythmia. 
Pulse 99, heart, uh, respiratory rate 21, blood pressure very low, has crackles, uh, and X-ray shows enlarged heart, bilateral fluffy infiltrates, and thickening of the interlobar, interlobar fissures. This is a classic uh, picture of heart, uh, heart failure. Which of the following findings is most likely in this patient? That is how they use a disease to ask you something about physiology. Decreased pulmonary vascular resistance, decreased lung compliance, decreased forced expiratory volume, increased carbon dioxide production, increased residual volume. What do you think will happen? Um, the basic idea there, the lungs have a lot of water. Okay, you take the lungs and you put them in water, they are soaked. What is the weight of the lung now? They're very heavy. Okay, it's gonna be very hard to expand them because they have water. Edema also impairs the surfactant production, so the alveoli tend to collapse more, so you need to develop a greater pressure to inflate them. So what is gonna change there? That is what happens in pulmonary edema. The lungs increase their weight and they produce less surfactant. Is that gonna produce a decreased pulmonary vascular resistance? I think that is, if there is water and this is the alveolus, this is the blood vessel. There is increased water here. What is gonna happen to the blood vessels? Lower diameter, okay? If you reduce the diameter of a blood vessel by 50%, the resistance increases by 16-fold, okay? That's something, so I think the pulmonary vascular resistance is gonna increase. Decreased lung compliance, what is that? What answer do you think? Is the one, two, three, four, five? Everybody agrees with two? Yeah, remember com uh, low compliance means stiffness, okay? Stiffness. And that's the one. Decreased force expiratory volume. Increased CO2 production. Why? People are gonna produce carbon dioxide when they exercise or something like that. There you have the explanation for later. Now, 21-year-old man in the ICU because of respiratory failure requires mechanical ventilation. And it says the minute ventilation is calculated to be seven liters per minute. Alveolar ventilation is 5.1, oh, you don't have to calculate. Which of the following is most likely to decrease the difference between minute ventilation and alveolar ventilation. This is the type of questions that 
students hate when you have one minute only. Because what is the meaning of decrease the difference? What is going to reduce the difference? So there is a difference of around two liters. You know? What is going to make that difference smaller? You either have to reduce the minute ventilation or increase the alveolar ventilation. I think it's easier to increase the alveolar ventilation. That could be either. How do you reduce the difference from, for example, increase the alveolar ventilation, the amount of air that reaches the alveoli, from five to six, let's say. Increase the alveolar ventilation, increasing respiratory rate, increasing the partial pressure of inhaled oxygen, decreasing the physiological dead space, decreasing affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen, increasing the respiratory depth, That's a confusing question because I'm sure if you don't see this question before, many are going to be tempted by increasing respiratory rate or depth, or they both could be. What is the answer there? Okay, that's a tip. Uh, decreasing the physiologic dead space. And that's what we said before about what happens during ex exercise. We recruit more blood vessels, okay, and that's gonna create a very important difference. Because if you increase the rate, maybe you decrease the, the depth, and if you increase the depth, maybe you decrease the rate, and that's not gonna create a very important result. So healthy 20-year-old college student male goes to the Everest and by plane, oh my goodness, without stopping at different places to adapt. Who goes by plane there directly? Upon landing, he feels dizzy and fatigued, notices that he's breathing faster than usual. What is the initial stimulus for the most likely acid-based disorder? Don't worry about it. We're not going to ask you anything about acid-based disorders. Huh? What is the stimulus? What do you think? First of all, you have to imagine what is the acid-based disorder. This patient gets to an area with low pressure of oxygen. So the lungs detect there is a problem getting oxygen, so they start breathing faster. What is going to happen with CO2 if you breathe faster? We are going to eliminate CO2, right? If we eliminate CO2, we are going to have a lower amount of acids in the, in the blood, so we are likely to develop alkalosis, respiratory alkalosis. So what is the initial stimulus for that? Hypoxic pulmonary vasodilation. Doesn't sound likely. Decreased partial pressure of alveolar oxygen. What do you think? Could be, no? Increasing arterial partial pressure of CO2. No, they are blowing it up. Worsen diffusion limitation of oxygen. 
Is there any problem with the diffusion of oxygen in the lungs because you travel to the Everest? The membrane in the alveoli is perfectly fine. Okay, there is no edema. When there is a diffusion limitation, when there is edema, or when there is a, something we call emphysema, destruction of the alveoli, or when there is fibrosis, on diagnosed atrial septal defect, 20-year-old guy that goes to the Everest and has a problem there because of an atrial septal defect. That's not going to produce anything. Okay, that is the initial stimulus. It's important when you have this type of questions, please read very well the question. Because in this case, they are asking you for the initial stimulus, but maybe the question asks something different. What is the adaptation to this, or what is the result of that? So it's important to know what the questions are asking. A child accidentally aspirates small pebble Okay, it's large in one area of the lung, right, inferior lobe. What changes are expected to occur in the arterial blood supply for this portion of the lungs? Obstruction, no ventilation in one area, what is going to happen? What happens to the arterial blood supply? Is it going to be increased or decreased? Are we still gonna send blood to that area to waste it so it's gonna decrease secondary to vasoconstriction hmm? a pebble is not gonna decrease the surfactant In which of the following pathological states would the oxygen content of the trachea resemble the oxygen content in the affected alveoli? We mentioned something like this before. Okay. The oxygen content in the trachea, we could say is, uh, depends on the, on the oxygen content that we are breathing, but then this air, remember, mixes with the water, water vapor in the nasal cavity, etc. so we'll have certain uh, lower than the atmospheric uh, pressure. Now, in the trachea, there is no gas exchange. So that is an anatomical dead space. Now, there are conditions in which okay, we have an increase in the physiological dead space. Could that be emphysema? Could that be Fibrosis, emphysema simply is rupture of the tissue of the lung, okay, destruction of the alveoli and blood vessels. Fibrosis, just imagine collagen fibers between the alveoli and the, and the blood vessel. You have a lot of collagen here. Pulmonary embolism. You have no blood going to an area. Foreign body obstruction or exercise. What do you think? Exercise is immediately ruled out because we already studied that it reduces the dead space. When we have an increase in dead space, what? from one to four, I don't know, 
which one? Main one, two, three, Wilson. Someone say two, someone says three. You have to look for a condition in which there is air, but there is no exchange. Okay, if you have a, an obstruction, there is no air. Okay, the ventilation is reduced when you have obstruction, constriction, two more. Okay, so in an embolism, you have air, but no blood. In a fibrosis, you have air, you have blood. There is diffusion, but not so much, because the oxygen has difficulties moving, and fibrosis sometimes produces difficulty expanding the lungs, so people breathe faster, and they have a lot of problems. They eliminate lots of CO2, but oxygen gets in well. Emphysema, the problem is uh, more about diffusion, too. Okay? In emphysema, we destroy, at the same time, alveoli and blood vessels. Okay, in emphysema, people normally don't develop cyanosis on, until very late. And emphysema is a specific disease that we call, there is a match ventilation perfusion defect. Because there is no mismatch. There is a defect because of the destruction of the tissue, but, the, but it's, there is not a mismatch. Okay, so in which situation we have ventilation but no gas exchange in a pulmonary embolism? Okay. There is air, like in the trachea, but this air doesn't go anywhere because there is no blood, at least available for gas exchange. Seventy-four-year-old man that comes uh, to the hospital because he started having shortness of breath and left-sided back pain for three, oh, three days after a hip fracture. And after surgery, he says uh, that the pain is sharp, occurs with deep breathing. Past medical history is significant for diabetes, hypertension, takes these medications. On exam, he's found to have friction rub at the left lung base. The right calf is also swollen with erythema and induration. Given this presentation, so do you know, do you have an idea what's going on here? What this patient has? Someone has an idea what, what is that? Someone who had a problem in the leg that was swollen? Pulmonary embolism after a DVT, okay? It's very easy in the vignette, but pulmonary embolism is probably the most common misdiagnosis in the clinical practice. It's the most commonly misdiagnosed thing looks nice, oh, but I'm not going to come like this, okay? Even we had a student having a massive pulmonary embolism some years ago, okay? He left, 7 p.m., shortness of breath in the parking lot. Another student, you can't drive like that. Yeah, 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 I'm okay. No, 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 let's go to Jackson. Massive pulmonary embolism. ICU for two weeks. She's doing fine now, but Okay, patients don't present like this. She was ch only shortness of breath. Only. Okay. And well, which of the following describes the most likely, or most likely describes the status of these patients 
long. So embolism, no blood, air is there. Is there a shunt? Is there hypoventilation? We said that there was air. Increased dead space, obstructive lung disease, restrictive lung disease. That's easy. I think so. You already mentioned that. Remember, a shunt is when the blood goes from the venous side of the body to the arterial side of the body without getting oxygen. So when there is an obstruction, the blood goes, moves, and finds no oxygen. That is a shunt. No ventilation creates a shunt. No perfusion okay, is what creates that space. So if by definition, and that's, those are the ideas that we have to keep in our minds so we don't get confused. This is, these things are very confusing if you don't understand what's going on there. Okay? If by definition, a shunt, is that the blood moves without getting oxygen, is that there is no ventilation. Okay? And the dead space is there is no gas exchange because there is no blood. Okay, so the perfusion is low, ventilation is normal. If you keep these two ideas in mind, you have everything you need to know about this thing. So 49-year-old obese man presents to the ER, fever, cough, blood is putin. Uh, he also has been waking up at night frequently, which he attributes to sweating while asleep. Okay, he's proud of recently losing some weight, denies actively trying to do so. He says he has had these symptoms intermittently for the last several years, but has no consistently sought treatment, okay, because has been homelessness, etc. He started on a course of therapy, leaves against medical advice, and before they explain the medications, returns two days later because his eyes are bleeding. Oh my goodness. The area of the lung most likely affected by this patient condition has which of the following characteristics? What do you think this patient has? TB, why? Homelessness. Mm -hmm. And looks like they prescribed something, no? That was very complicated. Or they had to, no? Oh no, they didn't explain anything. Could be TB, okay? Could be. Night sweats, weight loss, fever, cough with bloody sputum. Could be TB, could be a lung cancer. However, they don't say anything about smoking, but maybe smokes. The area of the lung most likely affected by this patient's condition has which of the following characteristics? You know how the TB area, the, the area of the lung that is assigned for TB infection, how it is? What is the correct answer there? Has high perfusion, high ventilation, high VQ, what is that? What is the
how is the VQ ratio in the apex compared to the bottom? It's higher. So what is the correct answer there? there high ventilation in the apex? So you know that there is high BQ, right? So you may choose between A, C, and D. The correct answer here is, remember the graph that I showed you at the beginning? Both the ventilation and perfusion are low. They increase from the apex to the bottom of the lungs. So both are low, ventilation and perfusion. The alveoli at the top, they are huge. They are expanded, so they can expand more, just a little bit. So compared to the bottom, to the base, Okay, they, are, they have low perfusion. Both are low, but the ratio is high at the apex. A scientist is trying to understand the influence of carbon dioxide content in blood on the oxygen binding. He didn't go to college. And he adds carbon dioxide to dog blood. Oh my, not to the dog, right? Dog blood. And measures the uptake of oxygen in the blood versus oxygen in the peripheral tissue. He notes in one dog that with the addition of carbon dioxide, with a pressure of 90 millimeters of mercury, mercury, the oxygen pressure in the peripheral tissue rose from 26 to 33. Okay, how is possible that if you add CO2 in the veins, you have an increase okay, in the oxygen pressure in the peripheral tissue? What explains that? Binding of oxygen to hemoglobin in the lungs drives the release of CO2 from hemoglobin. Some of the partial pressures of CO2 and oxygen cannot exceed High pressure of CO2 in the tissues facilitates oxygen unloading in peripheral tissues. High CO2 in the tissues decreases the peripheral blood volume. High CO2 causes alkalemia. If you have good test taking skills, you're gonna get this very rapidly because there are many things that don't make any sense there. What is the correct answer there? I'm simply asking you about the dissociation curve of the hemoglobin. Okay, what facilitates the unloading of oxygen? Okay. CO2, temperature, low pH. So keeping in mind some basic concepts, like CO2 produces acidosis. Okay. 
CO2 produces unloading of oxygen, so oxygen pressure is going to increase. And the first, the first uh, option may be confusing for some, because that is what we have in mind for many years, no? in the lungs, okay, oxygen goes uh, in, CO2 goes out, so when oxygen comes in, maybe CO2 goes out. But remember, the amount of CO2 bound to hemoglobin is tiny, is insignificant, and oxygen uh, and CO2 bind to different sites, so there is no competition between oxygen and CO2. Okay, CO2 normally travels uh, in the form of bicarbonate. It's the main form of transport of CO2. How can CO2 decrease the peripheral blood volume? Now, 30-year-old patient uh, comes for pulmonary function testing. They do a platysmography. That is a special study, okay? And they determine that the functional residual capacity is three liters. The tidal volume is 650 milliliters. Expiratory reserve volume is 1.5. Total lung capacity, eight liters, and dead space, 150. Respiratory rate is 15. What is the alveolar ventilation? Oh my. That's complicated. And we are not going to calculate that because you don't need for the exam. I'm going to simply leave you with the uh, question for you to see later if you like it. That's not going to be in your in your test. Now we have another person. Okay, uh, has some symptoms smokes, difficulty breathing, and no, denies, no? Denies difficulty breathing. No, endorses difficulty breathing, and has clubbing at the fingertips, okay? Wheezes, crackles, clubbing, and they order a pulmonary function test, and we obtain this tidal volume, residual volume, expiratory reserve volume, and inspiratory reserve volume. And they ask you, what is the functional residual capacity of this patient? I'll give you like one minute to calculate. Functional residual capacity is... What two things are there that we can use to calculate the functional residual capacity? I hear like a <laughs> Hopefully we are in our classroom soon. So the correct answer there is C. Okay, you add up, okay, the, 
residual volume and the expiratory reserve volume. Which of the following physiologic changes decreases the pulmonary vascular resistance? Okay, resistance is given by the degree of constriction. The more constriction, the more resistance. Inhaling the inspiratory reserve volume. That increases the vascular resistance. What do you think? Exhaling the expiratory reserve volume inhaling the entire vital capacity. That sounds weird, no? I'm going to inhale my vital capacity. Sounds weird. Exhaling the vital capacity, breath holding maneuver at functional residual capacity. I mean, what decreases? It's important to know what they are asking. Okay, If the question asks what decreases the resistance is what dilates the blood vessels when the blood vessels of the pulmonary circulation are going to be open, more open. When we inhale, when we exhale the uh, reserve volume, so it's a forced exhalation. When we inhale everything, when we exhale everything, or hold your breath after, so, um, so I can uh, do an EKG, for example, an X-ray. What do you think will happen to the blood vessels during inspiration? How are the alveoli during inspiration? Hmm? This is inspiration. No, this is not. This is the normal thing. Okay, say so we have an alveolus here, we have an alveolus here, we have a blood vessel, nothing's going on, equilibrium. Inspiration, this grows, this grows. Okay, there is a constriction because of the increased air, increased alveolar pressure. What happens during exhalation? What will happen with the blood vessels? Are they gonna dilate during a forced exhalation? Are they gonna be dilated? Or we are creating a huge positive pressure because of the forced exhalation, okay? We're going to compress the blood vessels too. That's the physiology. However, if you are a good test, take, test taker, well, I have two options that is inhale, exhale, something, and two options that is inhale, exhale, another thing. I don't think this could be because they include, vital capacity includes the uh, inspiratory and, uh, and expiratory reserve volume. So. Holding the breath, remember when we are holding a breath after or at the functional residual capacity is when all the forces in the chest are in equilibrium. We don't have anything pushing or pulling anything. So everything is going to be at rest. Everything is going to be very, very still, very quiet. So that's the moment when the blood circulates perfectly in the lungs. And there is a decrease in the pulmonary vascular resistance. Sixty-year-old woman with emphysema. Okay, goes to the pulmonologist for pulmonary function tests. 
Okay, uh, during the test, uh, she reaches a point where her airway pressure is equal to the atmospheric pressure. Which of the following is most likely to be found during this respiratory state? Pulmonary vascular resistance is at a maximum, at a minimum. Transmural pressure of the chest wall is at a minimum. What is transmural pressure? Transmural pressure is the difference between the alveolar pressure and the intrapleural pressure. We call it transmural. The transmural pressure, let's say, this is, let's say this is the alveolus. We have a pressure here of zero. And in the pleura, we have a pressure of minus six. Okay, so that's the transmural pressure. Okay, the difference between alveolar and intrapleural. If we expand the chest, we are gonna decrease this pressure to minus 10. That difference increases, so that's gonna expand the alveolus. Okay, the transmural pressure is what expands. When it's, the larger it gets, the larger the alveoli become. So that's a complex question, don't worry about this for the exam. But it's the moment when the airway pre pressure being equal to the atmospheric pressure, that means zero and zero, this is what happens at the functional residual capacity. As we saw in the previous question, that's the moment when the systemic or the pulmonary vascular resistance is at a minimum. Rest of the things, uh, the transmural pressure is not gonna Uh, it's not going to be either at a minimum or at a maximum. Okay, those are, don't make any sense there. You have the explanation there. But don't, wor uh, don't worry about this question. We are not going to be analyzing transmural pressure, nothing like that here. And that's it. Okay. Any questions? 